This is unstructured. Hey everybody, today we're joined by Robert Candell. Now, Robert Candell is kind of a widely varied entrepreneur. He's um, spent time in corporate America. He's built startup businesses, uh, for everything from a small computer shop all the way up to an international eight-figure business, One Taste, which is, I guess it's a school essentially based on relationship, intimacy, counseling, training people. Maybe we can get some more details in that. What, what exactly was One Taste? One Taste is, was, and is a school for adults. Uh, we There's so many places to go for your intellectual, your emotional health, your spiritual health, but there weren't many places for your sexual health. And so when we started in 19, sorry, 2004, it was a place where people could come and research and talk about and integrate around touching and orgasm and communication and male, female relationships. It was this incredible place of um, speaking about the things that you can't find anywhere else to talk about. So it's kind of a workshop? We did a whole litany of different things. We had workshops. We had uh, 10-month programs. We had weekly groups. There was really a very wide uh, different options that people can engage with our with our concepts. Okay. Now, from what I understand, though, your journey didn't quite start there. You uh, started a few years prior to that to get into... I guess, exploring sexuality and edu sex education? Yes. I My story is I consider myself normal till I was around 28. Really just <laughs> okay. following the path, you know, my father's path laid out for me of corporate job, getting married, buying a house in San Francisco, preparing for children. I mean, just really the, the A, B, and Cs of how to be a good citizen, how to be a good firstborn Jewish son, in society, all the rules that were laid out for me, you know, I was programmed and I was doing really well. And then at 28, my uh, first wife, Carol, said to me, hey, do you want to go to Burning Man? Burning Man, of course, mm -hmm. is going on right now with about 75,000 people. It's a huge festival in the desert. Mm -hmm. But back then, 20 years ago, it was much smaller, a mere 18,000 people and not as well known today. And I was like, I don't really want to go. It's for those other people. It's for those hippies and those massage therapists. <laughs> and and then she's like, why don't we go? And I was like, all right. So I went because of her. And then going was really the doorway to this most epic life that I've had. Wow. So now you had a, a pretty funny story about um, one of the main attractions that you definitely wanted to check out at Burning Man. Do you want to go into that? Sure. Sure. I can go into anything. So. Go to Burning Man. Actually, once I got there, I started to feel comfortable. Second or third day, Carol comes to me and says, hey, do you want to go to this place called Delilah's? That's where they have orgies. Now, this was not a normal thing to be asked or for Carol to say, because up to that point, we didn't really talk about our sex life. It was the pretty uh, standard Western sexual relationship, hot and heavy in the beginning, and then really diminishing down to nothing as time went uh -huh. down. Uh, shame and guilt uh, kind of getting in the way and lack of skills and lack of communication. And when she said, you know, do you want to go to a place with orgies? I was shocked because my little porn infested private mind was, you know, I, I, I was her reader and a an user of porn, but I'd never talked to anyone about it. So it was so out of context for her to ask me that. So I, I probably said, did yes. You find, did you find out what it was, what, what her impetus was? 
You know, I've never asked that question. That's a really good question. Um, all those years and all these interviews later, I never asked why she wanted that. I mean, in retrospect, I think I can see that she was as bored of our sex life as I was. Mm -hmm. But I was so kind of chauvinistic and so uninformed at the time. You know, I was trained that women, you know, don't really want sex as much as guys. I was trained that women are on the defense and guys are on the offense. And so my chauvinistic mind probably didn't even like put two and two together that she wanted more at the time. Maybe she was getting into the event and the mode you, you said you kind of relaxed into the environment. I, I wonder if the same thing might've been happening there and yeah, just opened both of your worlds. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, it was pretty life-changing at the, at the time. Awesome. So what, what did you find in this um, magnificent orgy? So uh, all day I'm thinking about it, looking forward to it. Delilah's, Delilah's, you know, just like so excited, you know, all this fantasies. Am I going to kiss another woman? Am I going to see sex? Or is she going to have sex with another guy? Like all this fantasy was finally coming true. And so like 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, we jump on our bikes and ride across the playa and get to the tent. And there's music, you know, the techno music booming out of it. And I walk up and I open up the tent doors and inside were 300 guys and two women, <laughs> me and Carol. So like like those standard high school party, you know, where the women are, you know, hugely outnumbered by the guys. And so there was no orgy going on. There was one couple in the corner making out. And Carol and I looked at each other. Carol became very popular very quickly. <laughs> I was not as popular as she was. And then so we just left five or ten minutes later. And I was devastated. I was like all day looking forward. This is my chance. But what happened after that is we started to have our first honest conversations about our sex life. Been together probably um, four or five years at this point. First honest yeah. conversation about sex. First honest conversation with anyone in my entire life about my sexual desires. And one truth led to another truth. And it changed our whole life because then we went back to San Francisco and started to explore. That's interesting, um, especially because you said you were normal until that point, mm -hmm. but you also said that you were excited about the idea of seeing her with other people, which would seem contrary to the chauvinistic wiring. So was it already fraying? You know, I think I've always had a very liberal aspect around it. I think I had, at that time especially, I had the most, the same jealousy fears and thoughts and possessive, but there was also this, I don't know, this adventure inside of me that I didn't even know was there. This different part of me arose at that Burning Man time that allowed me to see different parts. So I didn't know how I was going to react, but I was excited to find out. Hmm. Okay. And you mentioned, um, I don't know if you would say a porn addiction, but that you were a user of porn, like, uh, well, what, what time is it? This is everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've heard you mention before the uh, butterfly effect, which I've also checked out. John Ronson, fantastic. Amazing. Work. Amazing. Um, and there are fears that it is affecting young men, mm -hmm. it, it potentially in, in really negative ways. And I would go one further and say that there are a lot of problems with young men, not only sexually, but as, as a whole, um, an example that's not even sexually related is, have you heard how so many young people, I guess you can say young people, aren't bothering to get driver's licenses? Hmm. Now, you and I, I, 
I think are of a generation. I don't, I think our age isn't that far off that Mm -hmm. our 16th birthday was a sacred right because we could get a car or a license and license was freedom. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Isn't that an issue? Yeah. I, I haven't heard that driver's license. That's new. Thanks for the information, but there are significant statistics around marriage getting much Mm -hmm. older or not getting married at all, people having kids later. There's a whole group called incels, I-N-C-E-L-S, mm-hmm. who are swearing off sex virgins who just have no interest uh, in Japan. Second, In MGTOWs? Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a whole you know group in Japan that are significantly impacting the demographic, the economic impact, because they're 30 and they're not having kids and they're not having sex. So many of them to, you know, as people get older and as to take care of the next generation, there's fears around that. So I definitely see a lot of the world is changing. And I do agree with you. A lot has to do with porn. And I'm wondering, how do we tackle it? I mean, are you against porn? I'm not against porn. I'm, I'm against the misuse of porn. And the sad part is it's very simple to misuse porn. That's, you know, the bigger fear. So Mm -hmm. when I was using porn in 1998, you know, my use of porn was something called internet news groups, all dot (laughs) dot stories. (laughs) So you could get a picture too. You just had to wait a few. Right. And to get a picture (laughs) was like click and then, you know, 26, whatever it was, 28 dot, I don't even remember the number, 28 dot eight. BPS mm-hmm. bits per second, you know, yep. for all those kids out there listening, I, I apologize for the old school, but to get a picture or video was impossible basically over the internet. So mm-hmm. my usage was porn, uh, was uh, news groups and, and writing erotica. And mm-hmm. so even though it was erotica and though it was porn, it was still my imagination. There was still uh, an active part of my brain that was putting myself in the middle of these stories. What happened that John Ronson talked about in the butterfly effect with the uh, impact of free pornography, video based on any topic, thousands and thousands of video on any topic at your fingertips via phone or during a laptop is uh, has been huge because uh, one, education for young people is being Im- impacted, rise of erectile dysfunction, uh, women uh, and men both getting sex training, which is not sex training, it's porn training, and the mm-hmm. impact just goes across the board. Yeah, and that's a, a worry too, because um, really, sex is sloppy. Mm-hmm. And I I fear that the porn is representing it, and well, obviously it's not all sterile, but it is kind of a, a weird sterile situation. Mm-hmm. And then actually dealing with another person and awkward positions and things not fitting right and bumping and all that. Oh, I, I, you know, people can't deal with it, especially young people who haven't had any other exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you recommend? Well, the first is adults have to confront that their kids have access to porn. If not on their phones or their computers, then their friends' phones or computers. And when they go you know, a sleepover, odds are they're going to be watching pornography, even at school. So just know that this is something that's here. It's not going away. 
The second is I really would recommend re, you know listening to John Ronson's book to get a really easy, well-produced education about the impact. And then open the conversation with your kids. You know, if sex education or the sex conversation is awkward enough, I understand. But if you don't present it as, okay, I know you're going to watch this. I know you're going to see it. I want you to come to me and come with questions. I want to give you the the actual way sex can be. I don't want you to get um, read the propaganda and get your minds twisted that this is the way you treat a girl or a woman. It's not. It's, you know... Open the space for for both boys and girls, young boys and young girls to come to you so you can have an honest conversation about it. And I say that's really mandatory for anyone with kids anywhere from eight years old these days to 15 or 16. Out of curiosity, um, this might be left field, but how do you feel about sex workers? I am a fan of everything, especially in terms of sex workers. I have known hundreds of sex workers in my career. And I think they're providing a service that the world you know, needs. Our shame around sex and our shame around the giving and the receiving of sex is, um, is rampant. Now, in the same breath, without it being regulated, without there being levels of education or protection, I think, like anything else, it can be misused and also you can get some really bad situations for it. So while I like the concept of sex working and the permission of it, I would like to see it become legal. I would like to see it become regulated. And I love to have more education starting at the sex workers so they can be uh, fully who they are, the the healers of the world on my in my mind, mm-hmm. but do it in a safe and conscious way. I've always had a theory and... Um... One story that really stands out to me is uh, Daniele Bolelli, who um, does the History on Fire um, podcast, um, very you know, renowned educator, great guy. But he he lost his wife; hmm. uh, she uh, died of brain cancer, and he was completely at a loss what to do. He you know, he had a child; he's losing his house. He didn't get his his career. His wife just died. You know, he, he's just running crazy and. One of his friends um, sent him money, and now all of his friends were sending him money to get groceries or whatever. Mm-hmm. But his friend said, here's some money, but there's one rule. You can't do anything responsible with it. Mm-hmm. You have to do something just for yourself. Mm-hmm. And he tells a beautiful story of how he hired a sex worker. And mm-hmm. it, it was you know, very you know, professional thing. He had to go through checks and references. And, I mean, there, there was a lot involved. It was, I'm glad that this is out there because there's a good reputation, there's bad reputation, but there, there is definitely a protective industry in there. Mm-hmm. It's clean, cautious. I think she might even been a PhD. Mm. Um, but it, it broke his heart open in the mm-hmm. sense that he was able to actually feel and mm-hmm. connect with another human being, which helped propel him forward. Yeah, my friend uh, Christopher Hoffman wrote a book called Your Heart on Fire which was, he's an engineer, like a brilliant engineer, and his process of opening up his entire life through conscious sexuality work, tantricas, and and people not just having sex, but sensuality and sexual energy. And there's a long history, you know, as long as time is, there's been people with skills around sex and people who have been blocked around sex. And so, like, I got a massage yesterday, 80-minute, uh, 
from Burke Williams, which is a high-end spa in California where mm-hmm. I live. And that woman was you know, elbows and my shoulders and pressing and, and, and like, really, what is the difference between that and touching of genitals? I mean, she didn't, <laughs> but the point right. is, it's like, you know, what is it? It's our judgment. It's society's negative viewpoint on sexuality. It's the way we put things in boxes and out of fear and we want to control. And it really leads to, I think, a lot of this aggression. I think it leads to gun violence. I think it leads to a lot of um, issues between the genders and on some level wars because we don't have free access to our sexuality. Um, And I'm not saying it does it. I'm saying it, it adds to it. And if we had more connection, we would just be calmer, richer, deeper, and more intimately connected with our friends. It's interesting you brought up a massage as a point because... Um, I've made it a point to have a male um, practitioners that from time to time, mm. but I have to be honest, I prefer women. Why? It's not a sexual thing, mm. but I prefer it. So even that I can look and see that, yes, I have a degree of hypocrisy in myself mm. to where, yes, I have done it, da, 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 but uh, I really, I, I prefer the other. Um and I, I agree with you too about the violence. I, I think that societally speaking, specifically in the United States, um, we are very, very liberal with any kind of bloodshed and violence and mm. and things like that in, say, movies or games or whatever. But if um, if a booby gets exposed, we start to really worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Or breastfeeding. I mean, breastfeeding just what in the last 10 years has become allowable in society. I was talking to my mom about that and, you know, talking about how often she breastfed. And she said back when I was a kid, you know, in the seventies and eighties, it was very difficult and time consuming to be able to breastfeed because you had to do it in private, which is so interesting. It's like our viewpoints around this and our shame and our charge around it is so, so causing so many problems in today's society. Now, how, how do we work through that? I mean, I, I may be repeating the same question, but it, it is a, a big question. How do we face this? Education, I think, is the most important piece for people start to look at their shame, start to look at who they are. I think it starts at a micro level of each single person. Just starting to to take a look at it, I think will change. I know I've learned one thing and it's changed my life and it's changed my relationship with my wife or changed relationship with my stepkids. So the ability just to say, I'm gonna keep improving, then offering more places for conversation, more dialogue. Uh, we live in a time where there's all the information you need and all like-minded individuals available with one click on your computer. Go to Facebook and find other people who, who are doing what you're interested in. You can even create a false profile if you want, if you want to be anonymous. The point is, hmm. there's no reason these days that you cannot get information and connection over the things that you feel shameful about. And... I think it's just really important for people to have space to talk about it. Even some of the most dire, painful things, you know, child abuse or or child pornography, um, I'm fully and 100% against. But create a space for people who have these feelings or have these thoughts to at least talk about it, to off-gas, to allow what's out of the shadow into the light so it can be healed. And so it doesn't have to be this deep, dark secret. Find a place where you can talk about it so you don't feel alone and isolated in your own misery. 
Yeah, I, I've I've definitely read on that um, how these condition can persist because they cannot come forward and reveal their condition to even treat it. And right. because they're put in such a box and they wind up reoffending sometimes because of the box that they're put in. Well, this is my theory really about the whole male gender <laughs> is, is a degree <laughs> of this actually. Uh, you know, my book coming out is really just a cry to allow men to have a place for them to talk about all the feelings and all the fears and all the shame because we live in a society where men are looked at and because we're the patriarchy or because we looked in privileged positions, we're not allowed the space to discuss those fears and angst and ailments inside of us. And so to give space, so it doesn't have to be the secret, it could be something you can have in connection. And in that, I think so much pain would dissipate and flow if people felt safe to show who they are. I think, you, yes, you've said in the past that uh, men are dumb and women are angry. Yes. Now, a um, quick plug on the book, and I'll plug it again. Okay. The book is called Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by them. Yes. And when is that coming out again? November 5th. November 5th. Okay. And you'll have an audio book too, right? I have an audio book as well. Okay, good. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I get frustrated when new books come out. It's like, you have a podcast. You've got to release an audio book. Oh, no doubt. I can't wait to do the audiobook. actually. It's going to be fun because I'll get to put kind of my intonation into it. So anyway, go ahead. Cool. You need to do a bunch of asides too. I love it when that happens because then the audio book is a different book. Mm -hmm. So if something changed in the time, like right when you um, wrote the audio or wrote the original book and turned it in, then you can say, oh yeah. And by the way, this happened, blah, blah, blah. That's mm -hmm. kind of cool when the authors do that. I remember that. Um. Let's see. Uh, you've talked about before, um, I guess, the Tinder world, swipe left, swipe right, mm -hmm. um, things like that. Now, that's kind of almost the opposite of the whole young men not engaging because they're too addicted to pornography. That's kind of the hookup culture. So isn't that sort of a opposite end of the problem? It's a corollary. I think it's connected. So the Tinder world, what happened is people, men and women, mostly men, with their peas, that game playing, that game, that hunter function of just basically trying to find and connect and grab and get a woman. And so we gamified it with Tinder and all these different apps looking to find as, uh, the largest quantity of connections rather than looking at the quality of connections. Now, what happens is when you look at quantity, you're not willing to go as deep and we're not willing to go as deep, then when the road bumps of every relationship that happens, then instead of having the skills or the experience of like, okay, we hit a road bump, let's work this out. A lot of guys are bailing and just being like, ah, I'll just go back to my Tinder. And if Tinder doesn't work out, then I'll just have porn and games and my bros. And it, it's a lack of commitment and a, la a lack of a willingness to go deep into the stuff of life which is the conflict of relationship where you get to see different parts of yourself and different parts of your partner. So what's happening to go back to your original statement is that guys are, are not going full force and they're quitting and they're saying, why bother? And they're being dumb. Then what happens is women 
are not being treated the, the way they want to be treated, and then they get angry. But they don't tell guys why they're angry until guys get dumber, and then women get angrier, <laughs> then guys get dumber, and then women get angrier. And then we have the society where the, the large percentage of relationships are not satisfactory to anyone because we're not taking the time and skill to learn to connect in the good times and in the bad times. Okay, now to push back a little bit on that, I believe you're um, okay with polyamorous relationships. I am. Now, how does that equate? Because it could be seen that that may be a shortcut to never get completely involved with one person or another. Mm -hmm. You can flit about. So how do you um, reconcile the two? Well, let's let's go to the word monogamous. Let's just start there. So okay. the technical definition of monogamous is one love. That means mm -hmm. one love your entire life. You're basically mated for life. Now, there are definitely some couples that meet young and stay together and have really beautiful, powerful relationships. I, I've seen it. It's amazing to watch people like that. But mm -hmm. for 99.99999% of the rest of us, we've had multiple loves when it comes down to it. Then what happens is uh, society tells us that the only way, the proper way, is to be in a monogamous relationship or serial monogamy, one monogamous relationship after another. And inside that, especially as we get more isolated as time goes on, we move away from our families. We don't live in communities or neighborhoods. We mm -hmm. tend to be in two in the box, interacting with our phones and our screens more than people. What happens is that other person becomes responsible for everything for you. Like they've mm -hmm. got to be the MVP of the NFL, the NBA, the hockey league, horse racing. They have to be the best lover, the best friend, the companion, the intellectual. They have to be everything. Hmm. Now, go ahead. Uh, it's funny because I, I, I've, I listen to different people and there's different tracks. And this isn't down a sexual thing, but that actually goes into the whole um, anti-work theory of Thaddeus Russell. That the uh, atomic family as you were just speaking of mm -hmm. husband and wife and children was created to have a, a better movable working unit. And it's, it's literally culturally by design yes. to have a better working society. And that previously, you know, the whole, it takes a village to raise a child. Now mm -hmm. that well, it actually was an extended village and, and people going in and out. So I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that that's a really interesting parallel, if you will, mm -hmm. that the um, atomic family was created for a specific purpose of, of, of the work um, or, you know, to be good, proper citizens marching along and especially popular in um, communist Russia, actually. Right. Well, let's go. Let's go on that tangent for a second. So in the early 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, you know, families lived together. You had multi-generations in one house or one neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There was really a push to have connections. So a child wasn't just raised by the mother and father. It was raised by the grandparents, and there were cousins around, and there was you know uncles around. So there was always a kind of a multi-level to raise a child. Then after World War II, what they started to do was to build the suburbs. 
the suburbs was really started to build after the World War with the message of, you know, your house is your king, your castle, you know, keep up with the Joneses, you know, keep, you know, buy a refrigerator, buy your own washer dryer. And Levittown, New York, Long Island, was one of the first places where they built the same houses hundreds and hundreds of times as a way to sell you more shit, basically. So mm-hmm. whereas you know previous generations had the benefit and the beauty of multiple influences on children, we moved into the suburbs. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, I didn't have screens. You know, so my entertainment was a box or a bat or a baseball or tag or dodgeball. You know, my friends, I would jump on my bike and we'd meet and play outside in the world. But what's happening now, (laughs) what's happening? Yeah, camp. What's happening now is because I'm seeing it time and time again, because we're so isolated and we're so addicted to our screens and kids, my eight year old and 10 year old stepchildren are already addicted to their screens. We're Mm -hmm. losing all this connection, which is stopping us from truly having the skill for deep intimacy. And there's a, a, that brings up another one. Jeez, I'm going to tangent all out of this. It is unstructured. So we are living up to your your podcast. (laughs) Sold on it. But um, when you're looking at the screens, the perfect image is being presented to you. Mm-hmm. So you don't have an imaginary friend. You have an actual friend that you see on the screen. Mm-hmm. And that is destroying um, development cycles of children mm. because they aren't creating their crazy imaginary world, things like that. Or I don't know if you remember Dungeons and Dragons yeah. and things like, well, you know, okay, you have a bit, sure you were going by a plan, but then you were making up, oh, it's mm-hmm. this monsters and all these great things. Well, now, they don't have that. You see actual monsters on the screen, but it's presented to you. You see the movies with the better effects and stuff like that. And some of these kids, I think, are kind of building their own imaginary world as young adults mm-hmm. because they skipped it when they were a kid. Thus, mm-hmm. the um, I don't know what they call it, Furby culture, or, well, the um, the kin, other kin, and stuff like that. This I don't know about yet. I have girls, so I don't know about this yet. Uh, I mean, you might. Well, it's, uh, you know, people who are different sexuality. I mean, it's like all the gender paths. You oh, have, right. Uh, yes. Like 72 of them. Mm-hmm. I, I do feel like some of this is expressing um, possibly things that were missed earlier in childhood. Mm, I can see that. I can see that. So back to monogamy and non-monogamy, your original <laughs> question. Before we went off with this wild tangent. So... You know, what happens is we look to the other person to provide everything for us. Mm-hmm. And what people tend to do to keep their primary relationship is they cheat. And there's significantly high percentages of people cheating. And mm-hmm. cheating uh, used to be, the line used to be physical, but now they've added, you know, you look at Esther Perel, State of Affairs, Meeting in Captivity, books of those, of those, of ilk. What they're seeing is, is because that we looked at one person to provide everything, both the security and the insecurity, insecurity creating passion, security creating home life it's not working so we look outside our primary relationship so most people say i am monogamous but they're not because they're cheating either physically or emotionally and so what my viewpoint of non-monogamous relationship rather than polyamory which is a is a type of non-monogamous relationship is giving people 
the freedom to choose and rather than sneak to hire a sex worker to have something with their coworker or find someone online or, you know, Ashley Madison, like to, instead of going that route to actually say, I want to have more, but I want to be honest. I want to be deliberate. I want to do this with you. Can we have a conversation about the possibility? So people who do not monogamy well, which is challenging as monogamy, but people do it well. I've been amazed at how much richer their relationship can be because they're actually being honest of what's inside with their partner. So they're kind of shopping together. Shopping together. You know, like my wife and I have called something called a monogamy with guest stars relationship. Okay. That's mine. That TM. That's a trademark. Uh -oh. I wrote that. So, um, and what that means is we know we want more in life than just having sex with each other. And so we deliberately create situations and they're not that frequent to be honest, but we still have the option of creating situations where we engage in play outside of a relationship together with a lot of communication, a lot of deliberate deliberateness and a lot of fun. Okay. So it's not, you are using it to get deeper into your current relationship um, versus an escape hatch. Right. And, and that is the difference in obviously the switch on or hook up or anything else. You're you and she, she is at the high level and then everything else is kind of circling around you two. Yes. Or orbiting you. Yes. Not of an equal stature. So that helps knock out jealousy or things of that sort. Yes and no. I mean, jealousy can show up on anything, any reason, but for, for Morgan, my, my current wife, it's important for her to know that she's number one. For me, with my 18 years of non-monogamy, I want her to have whatever she wants. And so my training and my my ability to hold is really extended. But because I really want her to feel safe, it's really important for women to feel safe, then we make the arrangements that optimize her safety and our soul enjoyment. Okay. Now, your former marriage, mm -hmm. um, did your discoveries lead to... I'm going to say, assume a happy break or did it, you discovered that um, yourselves and they weren't necessarily together? My first marriage um, was amazing in terms of epically showing so much of myself. I'm so grateful to Carol. I'm so grateful for all she provided. And it was not a happy ending at all, um, just because mm. it was so dramatic. So what happened with Carol and I is we, we went to Burning Man. We had this conversation. We spent years, four or five years together, engaging and taking classes and workshops and living with other groups and you know moving and creating this world. And along the way, my viewpoint of what happened is that her, what she wanted in life became very different than I wanted. So mm. on top of it was all this, on top of this was all this sex and relationships and all these things that are happening. So I think what happened was that our desires for where we wanted to live just went in different directions. I think she wanted sort of a quieter, safer life, and I wanted a richer, deeper life. So the sex and all the non-monogamy on top of it was very dramatic, but at the core of it, we wanted something different. And so when the option for One Taste to open started, my business partner, Nicole Daydone, Carol's best friend said, listen, we're gonna do this this is going to cost us everything. 
all our time, all our energy, all our security. Do you want to go on this adventure? And I said yes, and Carol said no, and then our relationship went in different directions. But it was very dramatic. There was, it was very dramatic. Okay, I wasn't sure, and I always like to visit those threads that sure. are out there. Now, moving uh, forward to right now, because a lot of what I want to talk with you about are thoughts on the Me Too situation we are in right now, because I I feel like it's ugly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I am thrilled at the epic importance and change of Me Too. When I first started reading about it, you know, October of 2017 and all the articles and how Harvey Weinstein got busted in the sting with this woman. And then all of a sudden, you know, Me Too was, was happened before, uh, you know, 2017. It was actually an activist whose name just popped out of my head, uh, brought it up in 2008. Um, Tatiana, oh, Okay. Anyway, so um, please, I'll, I'll send it to you for the show notes. But so the it started back then, and then uh, Elisa Milano was the one to say, "Let's revive this and bring to the world that this has happened to me too." And the epic change that happened was it finally gave women permission to overtly communicate the negative impact, their perception, their perception of the negative impact that men have been doing to them for generations. Okay. Now, while there's been a lot of miscues and a lot of miscommunication, a lot of pain and a lot of fear in men and all these output has happened, the most important thing is there's been an opportunity for women to finally speak all the pain that's been residing inside of them and be heard. And I think that is the most important piece to the healing of our world. Okay, so you especially like it because the conversation has started. Yes. Are you concerned about the extent of what is happening? One of my worries, my personal worries, uh, I, I love that Harvey Weinstein's going down. Yeah. I don't think anyone on the planet who has a lick of sense is really worried about Harvey Weinstein. You know, he needs to go down. He's an absolute monster. Right. Um, but there is, I feel some nuance missing mm. because, and I'm going to use, um, a comparison with Louis CK, mm -hmm. who I think is a pig. Mm -hmm. And I think what he did was very piggish, disgusting, horrible, but it wasn't on the level of Harvey Weinstein. True. But they're equated. And, and that is, I think a problem. And Matt Damon got equated with them as well. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of an overarching backlash. And I fear that the voice is there, but the voice is getting so loud that it's drowning out maybe a little bit of reason, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of nuance. And how do we dial it back a little bit? I, I, there's a couple of things I totally agree with you with. So the, but I'll say something different first. So the first is, that there just has to be a time where all this pain that's been residing in women for generations need a, needs a space to off-gas. I have a, a friend and colleague, Satyan Raja, who'd be great for your show, by the way. Um, but he he and I were rapping about this, and he thinks he's like, he's got this 
voice. He's just like, I think like it's going to be like 15 to 20 years of women off gassing and men just have to listen. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't know if it's going to take that long, but maybe it will. But the, the truth for me is just to create a space for women to speak. Now, what I think you're speaking to, what I agree with, is there has to be uh, more deliberateness about the impact and the penalty. And I think mm-hmm. I'm, we're starting to see that, you know, from October 2018 to maybe, you know, six months later, anyone who crossed any line was just being knocked off because of their their words or what they did. And now mm-hmm. we're starting to see a little more deliberateness in terms of, okay, let's investigate that. Let's be sure Let's, you know, let's make sure that this is the right thing. And, and so while there's still room for improvement, I think we actually are seeing people get more deliberate. There's, you know, sexual abuse. And then there's consent agreements that have been broken or consent mistakes. Uh, Charlie Glickman just wrote about this recently, about the concept of uh, you just ha- you have a con- consent miscue, basically. I didn't read the article fully, but it's just like mm-hmm. we make little mistakes. Okay, let's apologize. Let's learn the impact, but let's not crucify. That makes sense. And um, I, and I, I not to cop out, but expectations were one thing at one time, mm-hmm. and there's something different at another time. Now, they may be completely wrong, and the behavior was completely wrong at that other time, but if that was the standard behavior yeah. it's like how we need to correct the standard operating procedure here right. not um not go oh well wait a minute you did this by been blah 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 time it's like uh, oh well i thought that's what we were supposed to do or or some people have that right um one other concern i have is there's a whole lot of i was attacked assaulted these are crimes mm. and i want them prosecuted if somebody assaulted, please have a report somewhere. Mm. Please report them to the police because we need to stop that. Mm. I mean, and and that's that's one thing that I, I fear too is that um, if if the nuance is lost, then what happens is there are some people who will equate a Matt Damon and a Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. and say, oh well, you know, a Matt Damon just said some stupid things. Mm. Harvey probably just said some stupid things too. Was and it that, Matt or no. was it Ben? I thought it was Ben Affleck. Was it? Did um, Matt say something dumb too? He said something that um, was not received, and I think it was something along of what I was saying. That essentially, that well, not all are the same. Mm. Some are worse than others, and it was. He kind of got a little bit backlash, saying, "How dare you question?" It's like, sorry, mm. <laughs> Ben. Ben. Uh, Ben says some things too. Ben definitely yeah. went after Sam Harris yeah. and things like that, yeah. but that was a whole different track. True. I don't know. Um, and also there's a, a backlash on the backlash. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asia Argento. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Well, I think it's great that it got brought to light. I'm not exactly sure exactly how it happened. I don't think the, the, the man or the boy at the time was the one who spread it. I think it was exposed, but it was leaked leaked. Yeah. So, um, I, my understanding is that she had sexual relationships with a 17 year old mm-hmm. and then, uh, he got paid off 300,000 or 350,000, something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And then it got leaked. And so, um, I think it's important for all these sides to be shown and for people to be authentic and for people to be real. And, you know, we use money to silence and we use mm-hmm. money to, uh, stop the truth from being told. And, it's a horrible process. Then again, how does a victim, you know, 
have the money for therapy or repair the life. Is I, you know, I'm right. not here to answer that. So my overall right. view about her is for her to say, you know, one of the leading proponents against Harvey Weinstein, which is great, but also to be like, and I did this, like it, it just lessens and it, it lessens her, her strength of her argument and also lessens my respect because, okay, you're human too. Why don't we just start all admitting to our humanness and that way it stops being so taboo and so in the shadow so we can actually learn and then there can be flow. That's my, you know, dream vision of how the world could be. I have a weird thought on that. Okay. And I'm wondering if that young man himself is a victim of Harvey Weinstein. So say more. Um, have you noticed how many female teachers are molesting students? Uh, yes. Yeah. Could it be a power a paradigm shift where she has been victimized for so long that she can't feel comfortable with somebody of her own age or of the stature or whatever. So she is in fact turning and attacking a young man. And I consider it an assault mm -hmm. personally. He, he was young. He was very impressionable. She took advantage of a relationship that went back to his being a very young child. Mm -hmm. So there's some depth there. Um, the same thing as why are there so many women teachers mm -hmm. who are going after high school boys? Mm -hmm. And could it be because they feel powerless and that's an opportunity for them to express power? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I could see that. I can totally see that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't haven't done much research about women teachers. There's, I've read probably five or six articles in the last four or five months has become, I'm sure it's more prevalent. And it's, it to me, not so much Harvey Weinstein, I would I would more bet it's just our inability to talk about our sexual desire. That woman had sexual desires for young men. Mm. I think there's nothing wrong with her desire for young men. I do think there's something wrong with her acting out on her desire for young men. Mm -hmm. We persecute desire at its basic level. And so what people do is they shove it into the shadow and then it comes out unconsciously through drinking or alcohol or drugs. And so if we can create an environment where all everyone's desires are right to be talked about and not to be implemented in a relationship or outside a relationship, then people would just get healthier and healthier. And this need to do something would diminish. That makes sense. Maybe they can have pressure releases. Yeah. Um, things of that sort. So to wrap some things up, yeah. what do we have next, Robert? For me? Yeah. I am so excited to be working on this book. Uh, version three just got completed yesterday and I'm sending mm -hmm. it out to some readers to take a look and, and get some feedback. And on November 5th, I'm doing a 12 hour book launch. Most book launches tend to be parties. You know, people right. come and you sign but I couldn't muster that many people in Los Angeles. And so what I'm doing instead is I'm doing a 12 hour, like Jerry Lewis telethon sort of thing. Um, hmm. where I'm going to be on Facebook live for 12 hours, having people come in and talk on my show. And maybe you want to come on and come on for 15 minutes and people sure. come visit me in Los Angeles and I'll be signing books. And so it's going to be an epic 12 hour book launch on November 5th. That's pretty cool. And then you can get the sales of the time to yeah. catch the window and pick up the Amazon bestseller status, yes. um, which I know is very, very important on getting a certain number of books sold at a certain amount of time. 
and all of that. And also you have your podcast. I have my weekly podcast called Tough Love. We talk about the issues that matter. It's a lot of my, like if this podcast was a level five in terms of my intensity, my Tough Love is level 10. So I just ah. go for it with my rant and I get pretty obnoxious and loud and fun. Uh, I have great guests. <laughs> so uh, that's at, also you can find that at robertcandell.com on iTunes and on Stitcher. Awesome. And now on social media, you are Robert Candell and some, and then Candell Consulting on Twitter. I think it's Robert Candell on Twitter. Yeah, it's Robert Candell. You can go to robertcandell.com and that's the hub and you can find all my social media there as well. Or just search my name. Well, hey, thanks a lot for coming on. You gave us a lot to chew on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Hey, it's Sarge. And Frenzy. From the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, If you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode featuring uh, people like actors. Comedians. Uh, survival experts. Authors. Martial arts experts. Basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes. Spreaker. Uh, uh, Stitcher. Google Play Music. iHeartRadio. Um, and you yeah. can check us out on all our social media. Facebook. Instagram. Twitter. All the things. It's all at Approved. Yep. Check it out and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.